This episode of The Tome Show is brought to you by EasyRollerDice.com. Go ahead, up your dice game. Listeners like you, thanks for using the Tome's Amazon and DMs Guild affiliate links, and our wonderful patrons over at Patreon.com slash The Tome Show. Welcome to The Tome Book Club for June 2017. The Tome is a D&D news reviews and interview show, and I'm your Tome host, Tracy Hurley. And I'm Jeff Greiner, and in each book club episode, we discuss one D&D-related book, spoilers be damned in full book club style, and our book this time around is Skullsworn by Brian Staveley. And with us in this episode, as always, is Eric Paquette. Hello. And joining us for the first time from the Appendix N podcast, Jeff Wickstrom. Hiya. Happy to be here. And if anybody hasn't been, if you guys have been listening to uh, the book club and haven't been checking out Appendix N, you're missing out. It's right here on the Tome Show, uh, so you get it in the same feed. But Jeff and Jeff talk about all, a bunch of books from the, the original Appendix N from the DMG that inspired the game of D&D, right? We are slowly working our way through 20th century fantasy. There you go. Uh, the most, recent, uh, most recently we've gotten up to 1948. There are some interesting holes in Appendix N, things that Gygax just didn't think was very didn't did not think was worth including. Hmm. But in general, it's a, it's interesting looking at it as a history of fantasy. Very good, very good. Well, we're not going to be talking about history of fantasy. I hope you can keep up with the modern uh, sort of uh, vernacular. It's gonna be a it's gonna be a challenge. I'm not gonna lie to you, but <laughs> I'm I'm here to do my best. I'm here to do my best. Good. Awesome. And next month we'll be reading the book The Captive Flame by Richard Lee Byers. The first book to the Brotherhood of the Griffin series, set in the Forgotten Realms. We're set to finish at the end of August, so please feel free to join us. But first, our sponsor. The sponsor this time around is EasyRollerDice.com. They're a fantastic dice company with the best dice I've ever owned. I, I used their metal dice for the first time in a game last weekend, and it was fantastic. The die had you know this nice heft to it without being like too heavy and, and hard to grab or whatever. Uh, with only a sheet of paper between the die and the table, I didn't seem to leave any marks. And I know that's a concern for people with metal dice. Uh, and, and reading the numbers against the the die metal, uh, the gun metal die face was, was really, it, like the numbers really pop nicely. It's, it's fantastic. Uh, so anyway, you should check it out over at EasyRollerDice.com and use the coupon code TOME, T-O-M-E, to get 15% off your first order. Which, I mean, you can't beat that, right? Like dice? Need more dice? Check out EasyRollerDice.com for amazing dice, including their gunmetal and rose gold collections. When you visit, make sure to use coupon code TOME, that's T-O-M-E, at checkout and save 15% immediately. Again, go to EasyRollerDice.com and use code TOME at checkout and save 15% and snag yourself some great dice and gaming accessories. Now, onto the book for this month, Skullsworn. Uh, first, we'd like to give a bit of a warning. The book deals with some mature content uh, and some swear words, including the F word. So, uh, and we, I, I don't know if we can easily talk about the book without discussing those. Yeah, there's a lot. Things. There's a lot of sexuality um, and and. Um, mature language. So this is one I would definitely never consider listening to or reading with my children. Even if my children were old enough, it would just be awkward. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, 
So anyway, let's talk about the book. Uh, Eric, I think you uh, recommended this book to us. Why don't you tell us what it's about? Actually, it was me. Oh, and, Tracy. Yes, Tracy yes I, I, won't, I won't make Eric do it. So, okay, uh, Tracy, it, tell us what it's about. It, it, oh, first, I'll just say it came up. Audible recommended it to me. Uh, and it said it was a sex-positive book, uh, dark fantasy, blah, 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 and seems sort of different. So I said, what the heck? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's about a woman who is trying to become a priestess uh, of the Skullsworn, which are basically people who are, follow a death deity. And she is trying to go through her trials to become a priestess in this order. And yeah. it is, at least superficially, about what is love. Because one of the things, part of the trial is she has to kill seven different types of people that meet this, I forget, is it a song or a poem? Yeah. It's a song. Yeah. Yeah. So she's given a song, she has to kill the seven different types of people in it, and one of them is uh, someone that basically brings her so much joy that she dances with love sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And she is very concerned about this because she has never felt love in her entire life and has like 15 days to suddenly fall in love. And then kill that person. And then kill that person. <laughs> right. As an offering to her death deity. Right. As yeah. one does. Just falling in love would be hard enough, but you know, you have to fall in love and then kill them. Right. Yeah. yeah. Although I, I kind of feel like if you can fall in love within 15 days. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's a it's a well, yeah. She takes a very uh, superficial interpretation of of love, um, you know, uh, and, and you know, forced because of the the nature of the situation. But she yeah. goes she goes back to her hometown where she where she sort of grew up on the streets, and um, you know, before she got away and joined the the the, the church, I guess, um, yeah. and and was trained or whatever. She grew up in the streets in this town. And now she's gone back to this town in order to fulfill the task and brought a couple of um, priests of, of the god, of the death god, with, with her to be sort of observers and witnesses to, you know, see that she's definitely accomplished her task. Yeah, and the thing is, is if she, if she doesn't accomplish her task, it's not just that she doesn't become a priestess. She also faces death herself then mm-hmm. if she fails. So that is weighing on her as well. And yeah, and the reason she goes back to where she's from is because she knows this man there that she's like, well, I'll just fall in love with him and that will all fix everything. And it's very, in some ways, kind of this, and I think on purpose, stereotypical. Like he's, I don't know, decently dashing. He's a commander. Mm-hmm. The, with the uh, piercing green eyes. and yeah. <laughs> If you're going to make a list of qualities that the guy that you're going to fall in love with in 15 days is going to have, I feel like he hits all of those buttons. Yeah, and they have a history, and they've like he has scars that were from sparring with her in the past and everything. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And and then from there, like she goes through the process of of accomplishing these different tasks and whatever and she kind of foments a rebellion uh, and brings up an old prophecy from old gods and then it turns out maybe those old gods are actually around and then they end up you know in as as it goes through trying to search out of you know are these gods is this something else posing as gods is it even real or is it just somebody else that's committing these these other murders that aren't her you know um, and so it kind of halfway through melds into sort of this mystery of figuring out, you know, what the heck is going on with this whole 
I was just kind of playing around by, by, you know, fulfilling this prophecy by putting these markings all over the town. Now all of a sudden it looks like this prophecy thing might be actually happening. Or is somebody else just playing off of my playing around? That actually leads to a question that I have for, uh, well, for the three of y'all. Which is, I know that this book, Skullsworn, is a standalone novel set in the same universe as a trilogy by the same author. Yeah. And apparently the narrator is a supporting cast member in that trilogy. Um, have, have any of y'all read that trilogy? Does the, the whole thing with the gods, does it land a little better if, uh, if, you're go- if you go into it with, with some knowledge about these, um, these ancient races? Eric? Tracy, have I either have of not, you read it? No, I have not read the other books. Oh, this is the first time I read a, a book by Brian Stavely. Okay. So. Me too. Yeah, and I haven't read it either. So all of oh, us I are coming. I, might, I thought I might be the odd man out. No, all of us are coming them. into this series uh, <laughs> having only read the one book. So. Um, so yeah, and I think that's worth exploring. Like, it's supposed to be a standalone story in a larger setting. Does it stand alone? What do you think, Jeff? Well, I think it does work as a standalone story. The only problem with it that I have is that the big revelation at the end, um, mm. where the the gods show up and they turn out to not be members of this one ancient race. That I, I read the ebook. I didn't get the audiobook, so I'm going to mispronounce the name names if I try to say them. The gods show up. They're not members of this one ancient race. They are instead members of this different ancient race. Dun, dun, dun. Right. This different supposedly extinct ancient race. And I got the impression that the difference between these two ancient races was maybe relevant to the plot of the trilogy, and the that revelation would maybe have some more dramatic impact if I was a little more familiar with the world. Because it's set up as a as a big reveal, and it did not feel like a particularly big reveal in compared to everything else that was going on that was a lot more relevant to uh, the main character's mm-hmm. uh, progress in life. Yeah, no, I, I tend to agree. I, I think there were there were like I think it the story held up okay for me, just fine. Like I, I kept up and whatever. But there were certainly elements where where yeah. The, the reveal of, of which ancient sort of immortal race um, the gods actually were, I felt like probably would have had more impact had I read the, the rest of the series. And there's also other like allusions to whether or not she is like she sets up the story with, um, with the guy that she's chasing after. Um, she sets up the story that she's actually part of this organization of like, you know, it's kind of like, I don't know, secret police or, or, or a spy, spy yeah. agency or whatever for the larger and empire. Probably, and he actually knows more about the secret police than she does, and he's trying to ask her questions about it, and she's she's dancing around it. Right. And so I, I, I wonder if that you know wouldn't have made more sense had we known anything about that organization or even the Skullsworn themselves. Um, there's a lot of references to her being trained in this other town and, and um, that they came here from this other town or whatever. <clears throat> and, you know... Uh, we don't really have any much of an idea other than a couple of reflections about what's what that's about and what's going on. Like it feels like there's a whole lot more going on in the world than what we get here. Uh, but I was able to follow the story fine, not knowing that stuff. So yeah, and, and it was kind of weird because everything does kind of get conveniently wrapped up in the end mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. And so yeah, so the the whole thing's like, oh, we thought it was this one ancient race, and now it turns out it's actually this whole other one. Um, and part of it was the priest uh, that that accompanied her, 
I was really looking forward to like killing the people mm. the the first race and then when he found out it wasn't that a member of that race it was a member of this other ancient race he was like yeah whatever they're still they're living too long i gotta kill him right well he's because he's a priest of the god of death and these are these are our races of people who don't die so whatever one one immortal to kill is as good as any other immortal to kill right right well this is the same guy though that like she brought up to it to him, you know. He they were having a, one of their philosophical conversations, and they do that sometimes. Uh, and and she brings up, you know, or he says to him something, you know, oh, all the people here on this pier are are dying. And she's like, well, yeah, but none of them are dying now. It's not like you know you're you're giving any of them to the goddess as we speak. He's, and he's like, no, no, no. Of the seven people here, like I've already killed two. It's like, what are you talking about? Oh, the poison takes a little while. Like he's just walking around killing people, <laughs> murdering <laughs> people. Like you know, well, I kind of feel like that person needs to die, and that person, and and he, you know, they, they make it a point in their philosophy. Like it's not personal. It's you know, I'm, I'm as I go through my life, the, every now and then the 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 god speaks to me, and or, or you know, I get this feeling or whatever, and and so I act on it. I did spend the first part of the book kind of. Uh, struggling with the revelation that these were basically like serial killers mm. who uh, uh, who were who were killing people for no call it no rational reason that an outsider would understand mm-hmm. and uh, so it was it, I was having a little bit of difficulty rooting for them but eventually <laughs> sure. I just I just stopped worrying about it feels kind of like the typical D&D thing with murder hobos right like they're just it's harder because they're people that they're killing rather yeah. than goblins. But well, I mean, those those goblins are daring to exist in the same world as humanity and elves and dwarves. These people are already members of civilization. How? Right. What, what right do the the death cultists have to, you know, murder one who is right and one who is wrong and somebody who's just happens to be singing when uh, mm. when they pass by and et cetera, et cetera. Lost in song. Well, and and it, it also occurs to me like she took the trial t- to to the point that she literally like fomented revolution in this city uh, as, right. as as a means of accomplishing the, the this trial. And I'm like, if there's a whole city of people that have been trained in this way, like how is the entire world not just in constant chaos? <laughs> like every single time a new priest is added, um, they have to go through this whole this whole big ordeal or whatever. And and does it always involve such such ambitious plans? And um, well, or, and how big I is guess, the order? Maybe there's only just the three of them. They're the only priests in out here. I don't know, but. I guess my interpretation there was that the uh, the main character, again, I'm not going to try to pronounce her name, <laughs> she was really unusual in that she felt that she loved nobody. Uh, most of the most of the candidates who go through the trial are like, oh, I have to kill somebody I love. No problem. I'll just go kill Steve, whom I love. Uh, she was unusual in that she didn't have somebody that she loved already and had to go through all of the trouble of, like you say, uh, starting a revolution to seduce a guy. So it was really just just a revolution by by or seduction by mean by way of revolution, while sort of te- checking off some boxes along the way. But really, the love one was the, was the only goal. Everything else she figured would be easy. I interpreted the revolution also as a death of civilization itself, as you death of the current order hmm. itself, which works with the the death goddess, the death hmm. god of Anashel. So, mm-hmm. so that's why when, when Pierre w- was doing that, that's how I was looking at this. I'm like, oh, they're killing off the current order. Mm-hmm. Well, 
I don't know. The city was being occupied by this empire that was basically a colonial power, and the empire had been occupying them for a couple of hundred years. And over the course of the novel, the city rises up in rebellion. And I think that the the clear implication, though, is that by the in the epilogue, I, I definitely got the impression that the empire came down on them like a hammer, and were real firm about reestablishing their dominance. Mm. Putting things back the way they'd been. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there were yeah. some interesting cultural sort of implications in a lot of that too, right? That that um, there was this larger empire that had colonized and they'd been there for you know centuries, but at the same time, like um, the the actual city itself had elements that felt very Egyptian to me, and and also a little bit Chinese mixed in as well. Did anybody else catch some of that? The political situation reminded me of the video game Morrowind. Actually, okay, with the with the occupying empire, I don't know and, Morrowind, but I'll take your word for it. Okay, well, okay. So Morrowind, there's an area. It's under. It's being occupied by an empire. The empire views the area as just a province, part of the empire. But a significant fraction of the people living there view the empire as this hostile external occupying force. And the difference in the way these two groups view the situation ultimately drives a big chunk of the plot of the game. Hmm. Oh, and that's not that's not entirely dissimilar to the way actual empires have worked in the real world as well. I mean, China and Egypt probably not as much because they were never colonized for that long, to my memory. But like you know, India or whatever had had similar divisions and whatever because they were a colony for two hundred fifty years. Yeah, I remember yeah. seeing the movie Gandhi about that. Yeah, yeah, I definitely felt. Um, I don't know if it was specifically China, but that area of, of the world and probably a little bit of Egyptian too. Well, there was a lot of conversation about the Delta and, um, and the, the canals and whatever. And I don't know that I would have innately gone Egypt, except for there's a lot of noting of crocodiles in the Delta and in the river. So it's like, Oh, well, yeah, that, that, that isn't something you find everywhere, you know? Right. And also, I don't know if it was intentional or not, so, or if anyone else, if it, or if it was just because I, I was doing it at one and a half speed, but whenever she did the male priest's voice, it sounded a little bit like it had a Chinese inflection. Yeah. I mean, I, don't know I if also listened to. I also listened to it at a faster speed too. But yeah, a lot of the names felt a little more uh, East East Asian to me as well, which is why I thought yeah. the, the Chinese. I read it on as an ebook format, so I'm in the same Jeffrey of Jeff Wingstone, so. They, they just appeared as, as normal sort of uh, fantasy names to you? That was the impression I got, yeah. Okay. So that made it, may have been an audiobook issue. Okay. So so all, all in all, what did we like about the book? What was good? I like the different view that they had of presenting about a... Basically, the main character that was a going through the belief of death and all that. and But yes... Killing somebody to love them. I mean, that different perspective mm. was different. But in fact, the way it was presented, I found it was a fascinating twist on it. Okay. Jeff, you were going to say something? Oh, I was going to say I liked the, the setting. The delta, mm-hmm. the description of the causeway and the city with the different islands mm-hmm. um, out in the middle of the delta and the precarious political situation. All of that like world-building mm-hmm. stuff. 
I yeah. really liked. I and would, I would that, love to read a, like a source book set in, about this setting. Mm-hmm. And that the uh, the city had more canals than roads. There was a note of that at one point, which makes the scene make a lot more sense when like you have your 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 typical sort of chase scene going on through the city, except instead of running through the streets after your your target, they're they're swimming and then bursting through other people's property and then jumping back on the canal and swimming again and, and over and over and over again trying to keep up with this boat. Yeah, and the the constant references to just how deadly the marsh outside the city mm. was, and then culminating in their trip out there, right? Which the, was, the given which land of the Delta. I like that a lot. Yeah, yeah, I like that a lot. Mm-hmm. Tracy, what about you? So, I liked. I think pretty much all of those things, with the caveat that I think the author did a little bit of the. The way of discussing sexuality was kind of absurd to the same way, like, all the killing was. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did overall like how sexuality was presented in the book, because this was these cultures didn't necessarily have the same sort of taboos when it came to having sex. Or at least that, certain members uh, of the group didn't, right? Yeah, but I mean, we didn't get too much of... The main city culture, although right. even there, I, I never picked up that people thought sex was taboo. No, because and there it, was a lot of conversation of the bathhouses and, and what happens there. and what Right. Happens, so. so the thing is, is like, I, I like that in a book where it wasn't taboo, the stuff that none of the stuff from... I didn't feel the same sort of like taboo discussion of it that we have in the regular world, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. So it, it was definitely, to me, sex positive... I didn't feel the grossness that I sometimes feel reading other fantasy books in it, um, except for the fact that like, it was sometimes so absurd, the things that were being discussed and how they were being discussed and when they decided to discuss them. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I, I generally tend to agree in, with everything you, you just said. Um, and But to, to point out some of the um, absurdness, I guess, there were moments where I felt like this – like there were there were – Bits where it dips into almost being your um, your your trashy romance novel sort of descriptions of situations, um, right. only only in a fantasy setting, you know. And so so there were moments where I'm like, is this just a fantasy version of a trashy romance novel? You know, what what exactly am I am I am I reading here? So. Right, and it was kind of funny because like it started, it would often start to go down that path, and I was like, mm-hmm. "Oh God, now this is the time when it's gonna actually go into that trashy romance novel part." Mm-hmm. But then it stops. Yeah, it never quite quite to get there. And, and a lot of times when that kind of stuff is happening, it is in the midst of a of a deeper sort of philosophical discussion. Right. You know, and 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 serves some purposes. There were other weird times, like in the middle of the the big final climactic fight. There there was weird moments of sexuality in there that that didn't seem to serve any purpose other than this is weird you know right <laughs> yeah i, I kind of so and when i talk about absurd i mean like 300 the movie level like with the violence and everything mm-hmm. where i just end up laughing even though the screen is full of blood because it is meant to be so incredibly absurd yeah way over the top yeah I don't know that that's necessarily a point in the book's favor, though. I was really kind of off-put by how cartoonish the um, the female priest that accompanies her came across as a lot of the time. Mm. Uh, oh, 
Ella, yeah. Ella, yeah, Ella. Yeah. I actually enjoyed Ella. Ella was fun of how interesting and just open and transparent that she was in the whole book. Yeah, I mean, yeah, Ella, Ella, Ella was probably my favorite character of the whole thing, so... She seemed really one-dimensional to me. She just, uh, either she was being sexy, or she was uh, not on screen. Those were her two settings. Yeah, I mean, I guess I didn't get that from her, and, and a lot of her, like, she seemed, like, yes, there were moments of her being sexy and whatever, but but those were usually a function of what I perceived as her being eccentric. Um, you know, even, even the main character, uh, who, you know, lives in this, in this world where sex is not a taboo sort of, uh, setting, um, still thought her, that Ella's perspective on things was, was weird and, and, um, what have you. But at the same time, like that was kind of the point is that the main character was also in some ways a little bit jealous of Ella because Ella was so, so comfortable in her own skin and so uh, confident in who she was. Oh, and, so Ella was basically like a manic pixie dream death priestess? I don't think that, that's a in- joke that went over like a lead balloon. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I don't think that's entirely unfair, but because, like, yes, because, and one of the things, uh, the whole spoilers for people is. That one of the the way the person that she eventually does in fact fall in love with is Ella, mm-hmm. during that climactic scene and blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. Well, so, and 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 looking back at the story, knowing that you can see how Ella like already knows that that's the plan and is trying to set it up the whole way through. Yeah. Right. So I re- I, when rereading when I was rereading it uh, about it with that in mind. I was seeing that, and I was like, I was getting the impression that it was not having Pierre fall in love with somebody, but just more realize who she actually is in love with. And mm-hmm. just Ella was just guiding and, and, and let her discover it, by, but, but laying hints here and there in the whole, in the whole well, story. Yeah, Pyre starts with a very simplistic, uh, childish view of what love consists of. And... Yeah, by the end of the novel, she has at least a different idea. Mm-hmm. I don't know that she has discounted her original idea of love, but she she has discovered a new concept of love, and she's she's come to some terms with herself as well. Uh, you know, modeling herself a little bit after Ella. Uh, so, any other thoughts about the 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 story, the novel, uh, how it goes, what's good, what's bad, any of that? Eric? For the book, I found it was, like, decent. Mm-hmm. But basically, I I felt I had to reread the book to be able to fully grasp at it. Because I, at first, I wasn't too sure if the book, if she was going to Dunbag for uh, for uh, killing off Rook, or was it for fermenting the, the rebellion and all that. So... It was not that much clearer to start, but mm. when I read it, it was able to. Yeah, well, think. I agree. I, I got about a third of the way through, and, I, and, and it occurred to me, I, I'm not even really sure what the point of the story is at this point. <laughs> it, yeah. co- it coalesced for me, uh, actually, probably about the halfway point, so not too far after there. Uh, and then the second half, I, th- I thought finished really strong. The uh, especially once we had the 
the weird mystery of who killed all these people on this boat and um, you know what, what was it put put flowers in their eyes or whatever. Yeah, actually, I I about a third of the way through, I got was getting frustrated with the book. I couldn't decide if I liked it or not, or where it was going, mm-hmm. and so I skipped and I read the last chapter, and that did a lot to put the uh, put it in context as okay. I was going on reading the reading the rest of it. But yeah, but part of me also wondered, like, how much of that is just the fact that it's a standalone book, and I'm not otherwise familiar with the character or the setting. You know, if this is a character who is introduced in the other series. Um, it's possible that there was some shorthand of who this person was under the assumption that the, the regular readers don't want to hear the whole, the whole spiel all over again. You know, so. If that's the case, then she certainly spends a lot of time pontificating on the transient nature of life and the generosity of the god of death. Mm-hmm. Um, there, was, there was a lot of that. There was, was no, that, there absolutely that, was. More of that than I really felt was, was completely necessary. Probably. Uh, somebody tell me if I'm wrong. This, does this come before the, the series? Because I feel like this is kind of a prequel giving us her background of how she became who she was. That's the impression that I got okay. trying to look up the, the trilogy and see how this connects to it. Mm-hmm. Well, on Goodreads, they list this as Chronicle of the Unhu Throne number zero. So, and then they go to number one, two, and three, so... Which is the other series. Which is the other series. So, The Empire's Blades is the first one. So, it's meant to be a prequel, but um, it's also... I think there's also some assumptions by the author that... Or at least an understanding that a lot of the people who are going to be reading this book have read the rest of the series. Uh, You know, it's a little bit like watching Star Wars episode one, two, and three... Uh, where they don't bother to explain a lot of, you know, um, what the Jedi are and how they work and whatever, because that's been pretty well established, and most of the audience has probably seen the ones that came later. So, which which is reasonable, I think. Right. I I tried to find like summaries of the trilogy because I was curious as to how large a role mm-hmm. the 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 character played. And I couldn't find. I found references to the the, the Order of Secret Police. Uh, they they apparently show up several times in the trilogy, uh-huh. but I couldn't find any references to to her, other than like in passing as as being a character who was who was there. Mm-hmm. So I I don't know how much of how much about her that we, we were get. expected to know. Yeah. yeah. So maybe it's just a, you know she's just a mysterious character or assassin or whatever that shows up here and there, but. Interesting. And I can under I can understand if you write a trilogy that has this minor character, who is a mysterious assassin who has this elaborate philosophy of death, how you might then want to go on to write a standalone book in which the assassin, who never got a chance to talk about her philosophy of death, mm. spends basically the entire novel uh, monologuing about it. <laughs> sure. Yeah, well, and it's a little bit like, going back to the Star Wars uh, analogy, right? It's a little bit like uh, the popularity of, of Boba Fett, right? Maybe she's a Boba Fett-style character who who has a relatively minor part but everybody loves, and so they decide to go back and fill in some of the, the backstory there. Could be, could be. So anyway, yeah, I, f- I found the, the book in general to be interesting. I'm not entirely sure that I want to check out the rest of the series. I'm really intrigued by the setting I'm somewhat intrigued by by the character. Uh, most of the characters we met, 
and may have liked don't make it out at the end. So, you know, you basically have to have a pretty strong affection for her if you wanted to, to go forward. But as you pointed out, she doesn't really make much of an appearance in the rest of the series, apparently. Well, I mean, none of us have read it, so we don't know. What do you guys think? Is, it, is Does this book drive you to want to read more? I think I do. Uh, a lot of it depends on how absurd the rest of it is. Uh-huh. Like, like, is this level of violence, like descriptions of violence and, and everything, just due to the fact that she happened to worship a death god, or is it just something he likes to write? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that that was my impression, too. Like, I really like the world building. I really like the character building. I'm not sure about the writing, <laughs> you know, so... I think I would want to look most for... Like, I like the, the character building and character development that mm-hmm. you see presented in the book. And I, just while looking up right now online for more about the Chronicle of the Moon Throne, there's an article that, about the master's level character development in the series. So... That's on tour, but mm-hmm. so if there other people are saying that he has good character development, yeah, no, I wouldn't say the character development is really good. Um, no, I wouldn't I'm, call it bad. No, absolutely. But, I mean, and, well, and, and honestly, like, there's a lot of times that that I will read a story and the author is developing their character through these philosophical discussions and these deep reflections and the monologues that Jeff mentioned and whatever. Um, and, and it feels like you're just going to have a big info dump and call that character development because the character is different afterwards. Well, I suppose that, you know, reflection is a part of that, but, but at the same time, like I have a hard time buying a lot of that most of the time, right? The character, a lot of character development feels fairly forced this didn't to me. I felt that like the character development was actually really strong. Like her her philosophical discussions and all that, I followed really well. I, I, I saw where things were going. I saw the logic and I saw the, the shift in her attitude sort of slowly change until there was the, the big move and the big shift at the end um, after, you know, the revelation about different kinds of love and what have you. Um, so I really, I, I thought the character development was done well. Yeah. Yeah, I I wouldn't say that it was done badly. I don't think that it was really the strongest part of the of the book, though. The thing that really appealed to me was the setting, and mm-hmm. I am kind of tempted to read the trilogy now just to to see more of this the setting. Setting, yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. As I mean, oftentimes, especially as I'm reading fantasy, and this doesn't quite feel like a traditional fantasy setting, but as I'm reading, I oftentimes am looking for inspiration in my own games and. Uh, and certainly I, there was a lot here that I'm like, oh, I'm going to take that and I'm going to make a city like that. And I'm going to describe things over here like this. And, uh, so there was a lot of inspiration here setting wise, uh, and character wise as well. But, but yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, like even just the description of the skulls and the planning, the, mm-hmm. I think it was the swamp violets or whatever in that. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other thing that kind of was talking about the gaming thing struck out to me is so a lot of these names to me sounded again like they potentially were east asian or something and then we'd ha- get freeport yeah and hearing freeport as the name of an actual city in the setting always like pulls me right out of it's it a, it's, it's a little jarring yeah yeah because freeport <laughs> well not only does it not fit in 
stylistically with the other names that we're hearing, and that could be intentional, right? If it's part of this other place with a different naming convention or whatever, that's fine. Yeah. But sure, free... the Empire is going to have different language groups. Sure, but but Freeport is a very specific thing to me as a gamer, right? That yeah. this Green is Ronin. A, yeah. This is a setting made by Green Ronin, and you know, weird Cthuloid cults and things are there, and and snake people and whatever. Like that, that's that's yeah, that would be that's strange to me. Yeah. One thing that stood out in for me. When I, while reading about the setting, is at one point they, they were speaking about the natives of Dunbang, the city where they are, and they're describing on their skin how all the natives have brown skin. It was like, cool. So, yeah, which, was, kind of, which kind of played into my my thought that it was sort of a sort of a an Egyptian, Egyptian. sort of thing, right? Yeah. So I was thinking either Egyptian or South American. Yeah, I mean, certainly there's elements that would fit South American-ish um, as well. But there's some potential uh, overlap there, right? There are some things that you could pull off, pull out and say, well, this this is reminiscent of Egypt or South America. And it could kind of, you know, the idea of the delta and living on the river and the, and the marsh and the crocodiles and, uh, you know, the... The, the ancient native people that, that live out in the wilderness and aren't quite civilized, quote, civilized, right? Um, all of that could kind of fit into either, uh, you know, cultural inspiration, I guess. So, all right. Uh, any last thoughts then as we wrap up our conversation about Skullsworn? I spent a lot of the book trying to decide whether I liked it or not. And by the end, I was... I only like it about 51%, I think. Okay. But I do like it. Yeah, I mean, I I was, I probably spent about half the book trying to figure out if I liked it or not. And then by the end, um, I decided, especially the last 50% of it, I, I found that I really enjoyed it. Uh, and the first 50% at least gave me some foundation to, to understand why I enjoyed the last 50%. So. Yeah, I think the story becomes a lot stronger once they go out into the Delta. Well, and, and there's a more clear sort of goal and plot it has kind of it gets kind of an apocalypse now sort of feel mm. where they're going up the river yeah, yeah. I, I enjoyed the book more upon my reread of it than okay. the initial part i was like i wasn't too sure and i was like it was not sticking in my mind completely but then yeah. it, it stacked my morning was much more interesting like oh okay <laughs> yeah and i have to agree there definitely are parts where like am i actually enjoying this book i'm not sure and I also was really afraid I was going to have to apologize for picking the book. So I'm glad. <laughs> I'm glad. So you were self-conscious the whole time thinking, man, what did I get these guys into? <laughs> A little bit. And like I said, and I was very upfront, like when I told Jeff about it, like Audible suggested this to me. We don't know what we want to read. Why don't we give it a shot? So I'm yeah. glad we gave it a shot for sure. Absolutely. Listen, I'm just happy to be reading something that was published in the 21st century. There you go. <laughs> Very good. Yeah, no. And it, and, it, and it is good for us to give it a shot. I mean, we, we try to get a variety of things, and this certainly is a niche that we have not filled yet So, yes. <laughs> uh, for in terms of style of book. So absolutely, I think it's, it was worth, uh, worth reading. So, And I am really intrigued by the setting. Um, I think there should be a setting book out there. You know? yeah, that absolutely. Would be I mean, there's, yeah. a, there's a lot of like traditional fantasy things that like – don't exist and then other sort of uh fantasy tropes that they bring in right the, the idea you know you don't have uh dwarves and elves and gnomes and and that kind of stuff running around it, it's so far as i can tell it's all uh, much grittier and more more real world earth than that uh, but at the yeah. same time there there's these at least two immortal races of beings that that 
have all but been wiped out, um, you know, supposed yeah. immortality, right? I think that looking at like colonialism and imperialism, yeah. the way the the empire is an occupying force in the Delta, um, I feel like that's a really under-examined setting element in yes. games, and I that that's something I'd really like to see more of and learn more about. Absolutely, I agree. From from the description, the setting, and from what I read a bit of uh, for RPG setting. It gave me a certain feel that it possibly could be done in Primeval Tool. Primeval Tool, yeah. Yeah. The books gave me that sort of vibe that possibly it, it could fit in that sort of setting. Mm -hmm. I could see that. Cool. All right. Well, I'm going to go ahead and uh, do one last call. Last thoughts? I'm good. Good. Thank you for allowing me to participate. <laughs> All right. Well, that's the end of our episode, so it's time to say goodbye, but before we do that, we would like to say thanks to Jeff Wickstrom for joining us on this episode. Jeff, where can people hear more from you? People can hear from me right on this very self-same um, podcast feed, the Tome Show Network. I am the co-host of Appendix N. We are slowly working our way through the Appendix N canon, up to 1948 as of last recording. Woohoo! Woohoo! What was that last recording? The last recording was What Mad Universe Ooh, uh, by Frederick Brown, which was so much better than The Carnelian Cube by uh, Elsprague <laughs> DeCamp and Fletcher Pratt. It is not even funny. I, uh, um, was Jeremiah McCoy with you on, on The Carnelian Cube one? I believe he was, yes. Okay, yeah, because I thought I saw he posted on Facebook um, that that episode had just come out. Uh, and he was like, so, come, t hey, check out this thing. I promise the podcast is way better than the books. <laughs> It's some humor that really has not aged well, is oh, the, the, the log line there. Mm -hmm. Very good. All right, well, we also want to thank everybody who supports us, like EasyRollerDice.com, as well as all of you who use the coupon code TOME, T-O-M-E, when you go there, or those who support us by using our affiliate links for Amazon or DMs Guild. We get a little part of the proceeds, and that helps us out, and you get the exact same experience from Amazon and DMs Guild. And we also want to thank our patrons from patreon.com slash the tome show. They get a little peek into what we're what we're doing and, and they get to help answer questions that help guide some of our topics and other things as we go through the show. Um, so I want to say thanks to all of them, especially people like Stephen Robertson, Jeremiah McCoy, who we just mentioned, uh, a new patron, uh, Robert Aducci, Matt Bible, Doug Palmer, and Mark. And if you'd like to contact us, you can send an email to the tome show at gmail.com. You can call our biz line at 919-BIZ-TOME. That's 919-B-I-Z-T-O-M-E. Uh, you can always reach out to me on Twitter at SarahDarkMagic or at SarahDarkMagic.com. You can find Jeff at, at Squatch. And you're also doing the Tome Show Twitter feed yeah, now? At, at the Tome Show, yep. And you can find Eric at, at Eric M. Pack, P-A-Q. And Eric with a C. Yes. Eric with a C. I forgot that part. Yep. Uh, if you want to find show notes or other great Tome Show shows like Appendix N, you can go over to thetomeshow.com. And that is our thoughts on Skullsworn. Up next for July and August of 2017, we're going to be reading The Captive Flame by Richard Lee Byers. Until then, keep turning the page, Tomites. I'm on the wall.